If you brought your Bibles, I want to encourage you to uh, turn to Joshua chapter 2. If you didn't bring your Bibles today, that's all right. Just grab one that looks just like this. They're sitting around. If not, poke a neighbor and see if they'll pass one to you. Uh, Make it real easy for you. I am on page uh, 178. So Joshua chapter 2, 178. Some of you are uh, maybe newer to the scriptures, and so uh, the Bible has kind of built into it a bit of a learning curve. I mean, this is a, a complicated book. It's full of lots, of lots of different stories, lots of different genres told over something akin to 2,000 years of human history. I mean, it's just, there's a lot that is going on. And so one of the ways that we help tell stories around here is with Flannel graph. So if you grew up in the ghetto uh, or, or in um, 90s church basement, whatever you happen to call it, just kidding, totally kidding, uh, you knew all about flannel graph, and it was one of the ways that we tell stories. But one of the things I want to do as we enter into this story, we need to do some heavy lifting on the back, or I should say on the front end, so that we can be ready to engage this story most fully. So if you're new to Scripture, this is going to be a bit of a crash course. If you're an old-timer to Scripture, then this is going to be refresher for you. But let's remember together for a second what it is that God intended for the world. Because God intended for the world to be full of life, verdancy, beauty. It was not meant for war and death and famine and sin and all of these sort of things. And so God has stepped into the world climactically in Genesis chapter 12 to reach out to one particular individual whose name was Abram, later Abraham. And he tells Abraham, I have a plan to undo the centuries of violence and blood. I am going to fix creation, and I am going to open a door for there to be redemption, not only for you, but for all that I have made, all of creation. And I'm going to do that with a four-step plan, beginning with a four-step plan. Helps if I turn the clicker on. There we go. God has a plan, and he shares that with Abraham. He says, I have a promise I'm going to make you. You are going to be my special people. I'm going to lavish you with all of my goodness so that everyone can see all of the goodness that I give you, and then they can see that this is the real, true, living God. This is the God who has life and your best in mind. And they'll cast aside all of the other foreign, false, fake, demonic gods, and they will follow me. So I will make a promise with you. I will be your God. You will be my people. The word we use for that is covenant. And I will make your people, later on we call them Israelites or Jews or Hebrews, all three of those words are used. I'm going to give you a very particular place, a swath of land, right in the middle of all of the action in the ancient Near East, so that you're right there and everybody sees you. They see the blessing I'm pouring out on you, they see the life, and they want a piece of it. So maybe they will come in and see what it is that you're doing and take it back out again because the purpose of all of this, the purpose of the promise and the people and the place is that they will be a blessing to the entire world. 
And that's God's plan. And so God goes to Moses. You might have seen this in a burning bush and reveals his plan to Moses as well. And Moses calls the people up out of Egypt and he brings them into to the, very, the very place of the promised land. But after sending 12 spies into the promised land and the spies coming back with, with terrifying news that there are mighty warriors with mighty walls and mighty cities and there's no way we can overcome it, their fear stops them at the gates of this promised land and they turn back and for 40 years they wander in the wilderness but during that time God preserves them and even though the generation that was disobedient to God begins to die off uh, Joshua steps up to take Moses's place and God comes to Joshua and says it is time now it's time to take the people back and it is time for you to take and march in the land we call Canaan which we will later call Israel and to take it but in order to take it they're going to have to destroy the cities and to kill the people that are there and there's a a point that I need to make here that this is God's judgment upon Canaan. In fact, we have a verse very early on when he is talking with Abraham. He reveals to Abraham, listen, your people are going to be in prison, enslaved in Egypt for 400 years because the judgment I need to bring against the Amorites or the people who dwell in Canaan, they have not reached the fullness of their sin yet. When they do, you will march upon them and take them. This probably sounds somewhat difficult or brutal to us, but let me just illustrate the kind of people that they are going to engage as they enter into the land of Canaan. One of the many gods that they worshipped in Canaan was a god called Molech. Some of you have heard of Molech. Molech was a, a kind of a large face, kind of fiery idol. And they had a bonfire usually built into the base of the idol itself. And there was a chute or a, uh, a, a, of, of some kind that... Uh, that fed right into that fire. And so in one of the regular ways in which you would worship the god Moloch is you would bring your newborn. I heard a baby. Baby's here, baby's here. You would take that newborn and you would set that newborn on the chute and you would let it go right into the fire. And that was how you worshipped Molech. Now if you can do this to yourself and you can imagine gathering in a room like this with a bunch of people or gathering outside with a bunch of people and they're taking turns dropping their babies into the fire. The sounds, the sights, the smells that would engage all of this. We are not talking about people who made small mistakes. We're about people, talking about people who sacrificed the innocent. And God brings the fullness of the weight of his judgment upon them to remove them and to replace them with the people who will follow and keep his righteous ways. Assuming they follow and keep his righteous ways, right? So that we need to be very clear about what is happening as Israel is entering into the promised land, the kind of people that are, are dwelling there. So because of this, God says, go in there and take that land. In fact, we have this. God says, take the land. It's in caps. I'd yell it at you, but I'm mic'd and it'll hurt your ears, so I won't do it. But take the land, right? Joshua 1 opens up with this over and over again. Three, every place the sole of your foot will tread, I'm going to give it to you, just as I promised to Moses. No man, oh, yeah, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. I'd love for that to be a promise God gave me. You always win. No matter what fight you get into, you're going to win. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. You notice the theme, right? You're with me? We notice the theme. What are you supposed to do, Joshua chapter 1? Get in there, take the land that I've given you because I am with you every step of the way. But then we enter into Joshua chapter 2 
and we get something we were not expecting. Something very deeply problematic. So let's dive into this story here. We'll begin with Joshua and the spies. Joshua, son of Nun, sent two men secretly. So he's sending them to spy. Now, immediately we're, we're pausing. We should be paused for a second because you'll notice Joshua sends them to do this. Did God tell Joshua to do this? No, God does not tell Joshua to do this. God told Moses to do this. He did not tell Joshua. What did he tell Joshua to do? Go in and take the land, not spy it out, not come up with your own plans, not come with some kind of machinations, but no, rather, you go take the land. But instead, Joshua has his own plans, and this, this should make us stop a little bit, should make us stop a little bit, but then you notice, where are they located? If you look at your Bibles, where are they located? They're located in Shittim. Nothing? Nothing? No. Shouldn't doesn't ring a bell to anybody. This is one of those moments where you go, dun, dun, dun. I was supposed to have that audio clip, but it didn't work. So you got to do it for me. That, that's the idea. Jackie has it. Copy Jackie. Ready? They're located. The, the, the people have camped at Shittim. That was really good. That was actually really good. I'm going to make you do it again just because threes are the way we work. But that was really good. Ready? They're located in Shittim. Yes. Very good. You might remember that 40 years prior when they had camped at Shittim before, they ran into some very exotic ladies, foreign women from Canaan. And those foreign women came into the camp and they smiled real big. Their eyes were real pretty. I don't know. They had on whatever people wore back then. I was trying to think of something fancy that ladies wear, but I couldn't think of it. <laughs> something fancy. Name something. Elizabeth Taylor, diamonds. They're wearing diamonds. Isn't that a thing? Isn't that perfume? Yeah. Oh, well, it's not good perfume. I don't know. Whatever. Anyway, they lead the, the people of Israel astray. They go in there, and they seduce the men, and they bring them out, and they begin to, to teach them how to worship their foreign gods. And so when we hear this, we're, we should be shocked. Like, oh, this rings a bell. Moses sending spies, camped at Shittim, all kinds of problems. And something happened here that should remind us immediately as we're ready to enter into the story. We're reminded of exotic women who lead men astray. Lead them to false gods. And so we're kind of ready to experience this as we enter into the story. And in fact, we find, and it's very, it's very funny. I know you're not going to laugh, but it's still funny. When you look at verse 1, Joshua, son of Nun, sent two men secretly to Shittim as spies. He says, go and view the land. This word view, you might have spy, you might, your versions might have different translations there. But in Hebrew, this word is literally to dig up. Go into the land and dig it up. Dig up all of the knowledge that you could want. So Joshua says, go into the land, dig it up, especially Jericho. And the men say to themselves, well, all right, well, how are we going to go about doing this? And they look left, and they look right, and they look left, and they look right, and they think to themselves, if we're going to go to Jericho, what, is there anything to do in Jericho? I don't know. We're supposed to dig it up in Jericho. What should we do? Well, we read, they go to the prostitute's house. Right? That's Im- immediately what they do. 
Go view the land, dig it up, especially Jericho. They came and went into the house of the prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. Now, 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 <laughs> I've heard a lot, of, uh, a lot of stories or a lot of sermons based on this, and I don't know that I've ever heard one that gets it right. Because the first thing everybody wants to do is defend the spies and their actions. Well, maybe there's a real good reason why they went there. Well, there is a real good reason, but it's not a defensible one, right? We're introduced immediately to an inversion. We are expecting the Canaanites to be the villains. We're expecting the Canaanites. And maybe we still are. We don't know what Rahab's going to do. But immediately I'm expecting something more righteous out of Joshua and more righteous out of the spies. But instead, we don't get that. We get them entering into the house of Rahab, the prostitute. Well, word goes out in some way so that the king finds out that this is where these spies have come from. Of course, they've all heard about what the Israelites are doing. And so he sends his men into Rahab's house to ask, hey, bring out the, the Israelites who have come here because they're, they've come here to, to destroy us. They've come here to dig up all of our secrets and to share it so that we are destroyed. But Rahab is cool in the cut, man. You know she is. And she says, oh, well, pff, you know, they were just here, but they left before the gate closed. If you hurry real quick, you can catch them. And unbeknownst to, of course, the soldiers, the, the, the spies had not left at all. In fact, what, what Rahab had done is she had take the, taken them up on top of, on top of her roof they looked like that. They were flat, flat roofs. And she hid them by taking piles of flax, which she might have actually used as pieces of her roof, and she covers them up so that if the soldiers, and we don't know, maybe they did, maybe they didn't, but if the soldiers came up, they would be like, hey, where, I don't, where's, I don't see any spies, right? And so they go. And they run off to try to find the spies, just as Rahab had given them instruction um, on, on what to do. And then we get this kind of zoomed-in picture where, where Rahab is actually begins to have a heart-to-heart with, with these spies. And I want to read it verbatim. So if you would look at your Bibles for me, we're going to read this chunk of Scripture. It begins in verse 8 and says that before the men laid down, she came into them on the roof and she says to them, so here is her speech to them. And I want you to follow along because you need to notice the words that she uses and where we would expect normally these words. What person should be speaking these words? I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of the Lord has fallen upon us and that all of the inhabitants of the land's Melt away before you, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water from the Red Sea before you when you came up out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you, for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, 
Please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. The men agree to this. We won't read all of their parts, but they agree to this. But I want you to notice the speech that Rahab gives. Because this is the speech the entire time we have been waiting to see on the lips of Joshua or on the lips of the spies. But instead it's on Rahab. Notice that she uses God's divine name. If you look at your Bibles, it's all, every time you see the the word Lord all in caps, right? That's a way that in English we hide God's divine name because we don't want to misuse or abuse it. But that tells us that she invokes the very name of God. Yahweh, you might have heard it as Jehovah, which is kind of a German corruption, but Yahweh, You've, she uses it not once, but four times. Now this is important to us, and you may not be surprised by this, but you ought to be, because the Jews kept the name of God, his actual divine name, so secret, they would die by the, we have stories of them being killed by the Romans by the thousands, because they would not even utter God's name, lest the Romans abuse the name. So we are shocked to hear that Rahab even knows the name of Yahweh, even knows the name of the Lord, let alone evokes it, and evokes not just his name, but his powerful deeds. Notice she she retells the story. He brought you through uh, the Red Sea. He helped you defeat these kings that were on the border before you enter into the land of Canaan. She recounts his mighty works. And then you'll notice verse 12. It says, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you. That's the way our, the version we're sort of using here. Some of your versions might have something differently. But here the English actually obscures something for us. Because what is behind the word kindly is that beautiful Hebrew word I've brought up a hundred times and will continue to until, um, until we go our separate ways. Is this word chesed. Right? And the word chesed is the word that is always, most commonly, almost always used to describe God's relationship with his people. It uses the word chesed. And so that word has kind of a, a grand sort of meaning. If you were to use it to apply, like, what is one word that describes my relationship with my wife? It would be really hard to pick one word, right? It would be something like affection, but it would also encompass like loyalty and commitment, right? It would have kind of both of those things at work, and so does this word chesed. So what is significant here is that Rahab not only evokes the name of God, she evokes the works of God, but she also utilizes their own religious terminology, She uses the word they use to describe their relationship with God. And she says, I want to have that same relationship with you. She uses all of these things that are deep and meaningful and significant and promise faithfulness. And like she's the hero of this story. We anticipated to see the spies like uh, accomplish some kind of like man from uncle or James Bond or Mission Impossible style. Like they're going to come out as these shining heroes who dig up all the secrets of Jericho. But all of a sudden, what do we find? They aren't digging up secrets. What are they? Buried. Right? Buried. 
That's the fun of the, the play that's being done here. Joshua says, dig things up, and here we find them not digging anything up at all, but rather being buried themselves, which illustrates further the complete failure of the spies to complete the mission that they've been given us. They've been given. They've been told to accomplish. And so we see something very interesting at work. Something very interesting at work. In fact, let me, let me drive this home even more. Look at the last verse. So it, let, let's, let's conclude the story. Rahab does, in fact, let the spies go. The spies do go back uh, to Joshua. And here we have their report to Joshua. And I want you to see it because it's hilarious. I know you won't laugh. I've said that twice. You laughed at that, though. Thanks, Carrie. Appreciate that. Peggy's not here. Where's Peggy? She's always laughing for me. Look at verse 24. They say to Joshua, the spies head back to Joshua. They meet up with Joshua, and this is their report to Joshua. Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Who just said that? Who? Let me hear it. Who just said that? Rahab. Rahab just said that. So not only does she save their lives, but then they go about stealing her homework, right? Turning it into Joshua. Well, we were supposed to dig things up and we made it to the prostitute's house and she said they're all afraid of us. That seems pretty good to us. This story is bonkers. And what makes it more insane is that it's taking place in the exact spot it should not be taking place. I don't know if you've ever written a story or tried to write a story. Maybe you've read a book. <laughs> and normally when you read a book, you open up with, the, like the, hey, you're going to go and do this adventure. And then here you are. You've got the hero of the story completing the adventure. But here all of a sudden, we have a new hero. The hero who the whole time is supposed to be the one we're there to defeat, to destroy, to eliminate But instead, we have somebody who stands up in the midst and shakes up the rest of what's about to happen. And the Bible does this over and over and over and over and over again, where things are moving along at a nice, heady clip. We're making sense of things. People are all doing well. And then all of a sudden, there's a bizarre inversion where the person we expect to be unfaithful is faithful, And the person who we expect to be faithful is unfaithful. And so we run into the story with Gehazi, Elisha's servant, and Naaman. We run into the story with David and Abigail. We we run into the story with Jesus and the, the, the sinners and the Pharisees. The Pharisees being the people who we expect to be good. But Jesus says, no, the prostitutes and sinners are entering in the kingdom of heaven because before you. Because you're still stuck. The Bible again and again Uh, uh, subverts these kinds of things, and I think it does it for a very particular reason. And I'm going to give you several points now as we move to a kind of a conclusion. Um, The first thing I want to point out is that the Bible is full of strong women, women of faith who stand up out of nowhere and just like, wow, that was the faith we were looking for the whole time. And I, I want to correct something that I've heard so often There is one hero of Joshua 2, and her name is Rahab. The second thing I would like to point out is that we see a kind of wideness in God's mercy that we don't expect. And I think that's intentional. Oftentimes, God warns the people to remember that the reason he is 
having chesed with them, the reason that he is, he is covenanting and has a relationship with them is not because they are so awesome and good and wonderful and perfect and pure and excellent, but rather because God is so perfect and pure and wonderful and merciful and excellent. And he has chosen this people to be his people. And so he, he corrects their arrogance, lest they think that it's because of their righteousness that God does all of the goodness that he does. In fact, no, it is God's own own righteousness that he reaches out to Israel itself. The people God calls his people are only his people because God says so. Because he's glorious and good. And so it presses us to see that God's mercy is very big and that oftentimes it emerges out of people and places you least expect it. Which is why I think why I think um, Jesus comes and hammers the point not only in his teaching but also in his life that we are um, to, to love our enemies. Which leads us to ask the question, if God's mercy is so wide, if God is reaching out even to Rahab, the least expected character of the story that they could run into and find out, oh, this woman has faith. Where is the wideness in our mercy? Does it reflect the same kind of wideness that God has? Are we truly interested in reaching out to the person least deserving, I guess we might put it that way, in our own eyes, in our own mind? Or are we, are we set on who we think is safe or good or worth our time and attention? Here, the spies run into something they didn't expect. They ran into a savior they ran into somebody who preserves their life. And in that moment, they also see the faithfulness they ought to have had the whole time. And of course, now we move into the rest of the book of Joshua. And we're able to actually see the fire take off and fuel and go. And God's people begin to take the land. But they don't do it until they receive a pep talk, as it were, from Rahab. We are called, then, I think, in this text to be aware of our own place in God's plan of mercy, but also called to expand our own understanding of mercy, our own willingness to offer grace, our own willingness to see where God might be moving in places we least expected. Jesus was known to spend time with who? All of the fine and fancy people, right? No, no. And we aren't supposed to either. And so I, this brings us to the kind of last point I want to make, and that is that God seems to love surprises. When you read your Bible, look for places where you're like, well, that doesn't sound quite right. They shouldn't be a hero. They shouldn't be a villain. This isn't what this character should say. This should be on the lips of this. Like, look for those surprises as you read your Bible, but I want you to look for those surprises as you live your life. Because if God is the God who loves surprises in Scripture, how much more in your own day, in your own family, in your own work? I am struck by the fact that Rahab's concern is for her father and for her mother and for her brothers and for her sisters and for all who belong to her household. Her concern is deep, not only for the preservation of her own life or just for the preservation of the spies, but everyone that is in her sphere of influence. She says, have mercy on all of us because Rahab is looking out, not in. And so often, this world is constantly pulling at you. 
to look in, to worry about yourself, to be self-centered and self-focused and self-aware only, but rather scripture is always pointing us out. If you look at early Christian art, actually, vis-a-vis something like Buddhist art, where Buddhist art, you always have eyes closed or eyes down, right? Because meditation, you're losing your consciousness. But for Christian art, Christian eyes were always out. Out or up, but normally out, looking for those who need to hear the grace, mercy, and love of God. And we need to take up that calling. This story teaches us to take up that calling. It teaches us to look for things where we wouldn't normally experience them and to experience the grace of God in people who we wouldn't expect to experience it with. As we come to conclusion, the band comes up and begins to get us going. I want to offer an invitation to you to to begin thinking as you hear this story and think about your own life and think about your week. My question to you is kind of, where do you fit when it comes to mercy? Have you received the fullness of the mercy of God? Because what we see here is the fullness of the mercy of God, not only on the spies and Joshua and Israel, but upon Rahab herself. And I also want to ask then, how wide is our mercy? Where do we, who are the people that you have written off in your life that you need to write back in? The people who you don't care about or you actually don't like, maybe even despise or hate. Because those are the people that God is also reaching out to. The Canaanite, who is the enemy, is the hero of Joshua 2, which tells us that God still cares even about Canaanites. That God still cares even about the most lost and the most unlovable. And maybe that speaks to you as somebody who feels that way. If that's so, meet an elder, come and see me. I want to pray with you and I want to tell you that God does not think you're unlovable. And secondly, if you find in your life or in your mind somebody who you count as that, I want you to reconsider that perhaps that person is a Rahab. As we come to conclusion then, let's stand as we sing this final song.